Welcome back to Parkside Green's Bible Study. Uh, Pastor Steve here, very grateful for the chance to study through the Gospel of Luke with you. You know, among many other things, Luke shows us what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Uh, over three dozen times, Luke uses the word disciple or disciples, which means someone who learns. A, a disciple is someone who learns, a, a student, an apprentice, a, a follower. And we see in Luke 5.33 that the Pharisees had their disciples and John the Baptist had his disciples. Uh, at times, this term refers to the little inner group of 12 disciples of Jesus in Luke 6.13. And at other times, it refers to a much larger circle of his followers or disciples, just four verses later in Luke 6.17. In the passage for this week, Luke 18, we will note four marks of a disciple, four characteristics that should be displayed by Jesus' followers. And these four marks of a disciple are persevering prayer in verses 1 to 8, then a humble heart in verses 9 to 17, comprehensive commitment in verses 18 to 30, and spiritual sight in verses 31 to 43. Now, looping a little bit back to last week, we know from Luke 17, 22, that Jesus was speaking to his disciples. And, and now in Luke 18, he tells his disciples a parable to the effect that they ought not to lose heart. They ought to pray always. A persevering prayer is something that could be a struggle. So he tells them a story, a parable uh, in which a widow is a victim of some kind of injustice. Uh, she's being wronged by someone in some way. And she's dealing with a judge who didn't fear God and didn't respect men. If he had feared God, he would have heeded Deuteronomy 27:19 that says, Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice that is due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. <laughs> but he didn't fear God, so what was the widow to do? Well, she does not have a husband to advocate on her behalf, and she probably has little social status in that culture, and she's dealing with a judge who just doesn't give a care. So how in the world is she going to get justice against her adversary? Well, the widow decides simply to persevere in pleading her case. Day after day, week after week, she just goes on asking the judge for justice. And the judge, who is kind of tired of what he views as the widow's persevering pleas, he just wants to be left in peace. So he finally tells himself that because the widow kept on bothering him, he will give her justice and so that she won't wear him out by her continual coming. Now, obviously, details concerning the judge the fact that he cares little for justice, the fact that he uh, is going to get worn out or worried about getting worn out by her repeated requests, does not apply to God, does not. The parable is not about us pestering God in order to get what we want, our personal favors. Rather, as with the earlier parable of the friend at midnight, you remember in Luke 11, what we have here is an argument from the lesser to the greater, from the lesser to the greater. Verses 6 and 7 are key in getting us the main point, which is, if this unprincipled judge can be moved into action by this widow's persistence, how much more will God answer his people's prayers for justice? 
In other words, the unfavorable situation of this widow before an unjust judge is contrasted with the favorable situation of God's elect before our righteous God. That is, if an unrighteous judge who is faced with the persistent cry of a widow in whom he has little interest and to whom he does not want to listen, eventually responds and gives her justice, how much more, how much more will God, certainly a righteous God, hear the persistent cry of his people in whom he has great interest and to whom he's always prepared to listen? He'll see that they get justice speedily. And remember the context, right? If you look at it's just on the heels of Luke chapter 17, where Jesus has been teaching his disciples about the day of the Son of Man and his sudden coming. So the parable encourages Jesus' disciples then to, and encourages us now as well, as we face difficult times before Jesus returns to reign, not to give up, not to question whether God will answer our prayers. When the Son of Man comes, he will get justice to his people, and he'll do it speedily or suddenly. So the real question for us is whether we will persevere in our prayers and our faith until Jesus returns. You see that main point? It's right there at the beginning in verse 1, and it's right there at the end in verse 8. Jesus is instructing his disciples, his followers, to persevere in our prayers and in our faith. And if we do that, then yes, when the Son of Man comes, he will find faith on the earth. A disciple is marked by persevering prayer. And a disciple is also marked by a humble heart, as we see in the next section. Two people go to the temple to pray, uh, and the contrast between them could not be greater. <laughs> The Pharisee represents the, the most religious person of the day. He's very meticulous in uh, his religious practices, and he rehearses all the sins that he's refrained from, and he also uh, rehearses before God in his prayer all the good that he has done. Now, his prayer is pretty self-centered, isn't it? Uh, I thank you that I am not like other men, like this tax collector, and uh, I actually fast twice a week, and I tithe from all that I get. But comparison with others is not a very true sense of how our spiritual status is before God, because looks can be deceiving. We should never try to trust in ourselves or look down on others with contempt, because we're all sinners who need God's mercy. We're equal at the foot of the cross. And, and the tax collector, by contrast, he represents the least religious person of his day. Right? He makes his money at other people's expense, and his prayer instead focuses on his sinfulness. He, he won't even lift his eyes to heaven, and he's beating his breast uh, with contrition. He confesses that he is a sinner, and he asks God to be merciful to him, a sinner. Shockingly, Jesus says that this one, the tax collector, and not the Pharisee, went home justified. That is, the tax collector was right with God. He was accepted by God because he received God's mercy 
through repentance and faith. Only when we admit that we are sinners in need of God's mercy can we receive God's justification by his grace. For me, and maybe for some of you as well, this parable is is a warning not to be confident in ourselves or our own righteousness or ever look down on others because I go to church or I tithe or I have daily devotions or whatever religious practice that we might be proud of. Now, we do not come into a right relationship with God by our works. By Instead, we get in a right relationship with God by his gift of, of faith, allowing us to trust in Jesus, who justifies the ungodly. Romans 4, 5 says that the one who does not work, but believes him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. As Jesus said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Entering God's kingdom requires a humble heart, and we see that point continuing in verses 15 to 17, as people brought infants to Jesus that he might touch them. The disciples rebuked them. Perhaps they saw these children who were really low status in the ancient world uh, as, you know, a waste of Jesus's precious time. Like the desperate widow, kind of before, like the, the anguished tax collector. But Jesus explains that the kingdom of God belongs to ones like these children, the so-called nobodies who had humble hearts and didn't come to Jesus on the merits of their own status. Like the tax collector, they come really not offering anything to Jesus, but to receive. And many in the ancient world viewed kids as they're a burden until they got physically strong enough to help the family with labor. But Jesus says that to enter God's kingdom, we must receive it, not achieve it, but receive it like a child with childlike trust and humble hearts. A disciple is marked by a humble heart. And a disciple is also marked by comprehensive commitment. Comprehensive commitment. A ruler asked Jesus uh, as the good teacher what he must do, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus in turn asked the ruler, why did he call Jesus good since no one is good except God alone? Now, Jesus is not denying that he himself is good, but I think he's hinting that if we grasp that God alone is good, then we'll realize that nothing we can do will merit eternal life. So God alone is good, and and the ruler then ought to acknowledge that he has not kept all of God's commandments. But like the Pharisee in the temple, this ruler is very confident about his law-keeping. In fact, he says he kept all the commandments that Jesus listed from his youth. And then Jesus points out that this ruler actually was lacking in the very first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me or beside me. And maybe the tenth commandment as well, thou shalt not covet. Because this ruler was exceedingly rich, and it appears that he loved his money. Uh, In fact, money seems to have been his idol, the main obstacle in his relationship to God. He had a selective commitment, not a comprehensive commitment to God. 
So out of love for the ruler, you'll see that in Mark 10, 21, the parallel passage, it's out of love for the ruler that Jesus says, sell all you have and, and distribute it to the poor. And then he could follow Jesus and, and have treasure in heaven, right? The very eternal life that he's been asking about. But when the ruler hears Jesus's challenge to put God before his wealth, he became very sad because he was not willing to let go of his money in order to be all in with God. Wealth can exert a powerful gravitational pull. And the way this ruler walked away, we're told in Mark 10, 22, uh, walked away from Jesus, uh, led Jesus to reflect on how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is harder for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, you may have heard the explanation. It was developed apparently around the 11th century in the Middle Ages that, well, the eye of the needle is actually a narrow gate in, in Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, and a camel supposedly could pass through this gate once it had uh, taken its baggage off of itself and then stooped down. And maybe that's the posture this man needed. So it kind of would give the rich man a, like a fighting chance to actually be able to get to heaven. And the only problem with this interpretation is there is no hard evidence at all that there was such a gate in the first century. Rather, it seems most likely that Jesus is using a figure of speech, hyperbole, in order to make the point that it's a especially hard for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. Why? Because they, they may love or they may depend on their wealth more than God. Well, those listening are so shocked by what Jesus says that they ask, then who can be saved? And the good news is that what is impossible with humans is possible with God. In fact, we'll see next week that uh, salvation comes to the wealthy Zacchaeus, who repents. So it's impossible for us to save ourselves, but God can save anyone, even a rich person. Now, Peter sort of gets it here, and he points out that, hey, he and the other disciples have left their homes and their families to follow Jesus. And Jesus replies that, yeah, everyone who's left their homes and families for the sake of God's kingdom will receive many times more in this life and eternal life in the age to come. One commentator said that commitment to Jesus will never impoverish his disciples. Jesus' followers will get to enjoy a big family, uh, so many spiritual brothers and sisters in this life, and in the age to come, Jesus' followers will enjoy what the ruler had been asking about, eternal life. <laughs> Eternal life, then, is not something that we achieve by keeping God's commandments. It's rather something we receive by God's grace. And when God has saved us, then he asks us to put everything, including our money, under the lordship of Jesus Christ. A disciple is marked by comprehensive commitment. And lastly, a disciple is marked by spiritual sight. Uh, as Jesus drew new to, near to Jericho, he's just less than 20 miles from Jerusalem now, a blind beggar by the roadside heard the crowd passing by, and he asked, you know, what's this hubbub all about? 
And when he found out that Jesus of Nazareth was coming by, he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Though the man lacked physical sight, he had the spiritual sight to know that Jesus could grant him mercy, could probably heal him of his blindness, bring recovery to his sight. And uh, now those at the front of the crowd, kind of at the beginning of the entourage, they rebuked this guy. They, they told him to stay silent. They, they saw him as an intrusion, almost like people saw the infants earlier. So, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Uh, in fact, some say that uh, this man recognized Jesus as the Messiah, the chosen son of David who was to come and deliver his people. What we know for sure is that like the widow earlier, he persevered in calling out for help all the more loudly. And just as we'd expect, Jesus stopped so that he could respond to the blind beggar. The, the beggar is escorted over to Jesus who asks him what he wants him to do for him. And the man addresses Jesus as Lord and then asks for recovery of his sight. And rather than begging for money, as he did with the other passers-by, now the man had the spiritual sight to trust that Jesus was capable of healing him. And Jesus declares that the man's faith has made him well, and he grants him immediate recovery of his sight. The healed man then follows Jesus and he glorifies God. He's like the Samaritan leper earlier. He, he has the spiritual sight to grasp that God has healed him through Jesus. And then everyone joins in giving glory to God and praise to him. And we know that that spiritual sight to grasp who Jesus is comes as a gift of God because... When Jesus told his inner group of 12, as they neared Jerusalem, that all the prophecies about him were going to be fulfilled, they just didn't get it. They didn't have the spiritual sight at that time. Jesus told them plainly that uh, he was going to be delivered over to the Gentiles and mocked and shamefully treated and spat upon and flogged and killed. And then on the third day, he would rise again. But the twelve understood none of these things. They could not grasp it at this time. And, and neither can we apart from God's grace. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, says that the God of this world blinds the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel in the glory of Christ. Two verses later, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, says that God must shine into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God is the one who opens our blind eyes that we may turn from darkness to light. The disciples of Jesus are marked by spiritual sight, which is a gift of God. It's one of the greatest gifts of God. Well, as always, there's just so much that uh, connects with our lives in powerful ways here. So let's consider four possible applications as we, we want to be not just hearers, but doers of God's word. Number one, be encouraged to always pray and not lose heart. God will give justice to his elect as they cry out to him. So persevere in your prayer. Persevere in your prayer. Secondly, 
don't trust our spiritual resumes to make us right with God. No, instead, with a humble heart, ask God to be merciful to me, a sinner. With a humble heart and posture, ask God to be merciful to me, a sinner. Thirdly, once God has saved you by his grace, then bring everything, including your money, under Jesus' lordship. Make it a comprehensive commitment. Comprehensive commitment. And fourth and finally, as a believer, thank God that he has taken away the, the veil from your heart. That's in 2 Corinthians 3, 14 to 18. And he has granted you this gift of spiritual sight. As a believer, thank God he has taken away the veil from your heart, 2 Corinthians 3, and has given you spiritual sight. What a great gift. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that it's living and active, pierces right into the division of our souls and spirits. Uh, we thank you for encouraging us to always pray and not lose heart, knowing that you're eager to answer your children's prayers. And thank you for reminding us that we are all equal at the foot of the cross, and we humbly ask you to continue to be merciful to us sinners. Thank you that what's impossible with people is possible with you, that you save your people by your grace through faith in the Lord Jesus. And lastly, thank you for taking away the veil from our hearts, for opening our blind eyes and giving us spiritual sight so that we can see Jesus and follow him. It's through him that we pray. Amen.